This is Andrew Hall, host of Dead Hand Radio. My guest for this episode is Preston Dennett, UFO researcher, investigator, and author of 27 books. Initially a skeptic, Preston had no interest in UFOs until 1986, when he learned about an incident over Alaska involving an airline pilot who witnessed a large unidentified craft and went public with his experience. Later, while discussing this incident with friends and family, Preston made a discovery he didn't expect. People he knew and trusted were having similar experiences. Since then, Preston has been looking into the topic of UFOs and has spoken to hundreds of witnesses and experiencers. In this episode, Preston gives a detailed account of his interest in UFOs and how he's evolved as a researcher, investigator, and author over the years of exploring this topic. He goes into detail on how he's managed to connect with and interview so many eyewitnesses, contactees, and abductees. Then we discuss the 1953 Kingman, Arizona UFO crash and subsequent cover-up by the U.S. government, potential causes of the crash, and what was recovered from the site. We also talk about Skyhub and the mobile tracking platform that Jeremy McGowan is building, and I pose some questions to Preston on Jeremy's behalf that result in Preston dropping a nuclear bomb on me about another crash which I've never even heard about, and will ultimately lead to a follow-up with Preston on a future episode of this podcast. And now, dear listener, I urge you to suspend your disbelief, set aside your skepticism, and prepare for this UFO edition of Dead Hand Radio. My name is Preston Dennett. I'm a UFO researcher and the author of 27 books, and you're listening to Dead Hand Radio. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I look forward to talking to somebody with your knowledge about the Kingman, Arizona crash. You know, I enjoy doing this stuff and uh, yeah, I'm ready to talk about UFOs. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I love this particular incident. It's a good one. Uh, okay, cool. So before we get into that, uh, I'd like to just get a little bit of information about your background, uh, your interest in the topic of UFOs and what led you to um, dive in and, and become a researcher. Uh, yeah, you know, I was actually repulsed by this subject for years growing up, did not believe in it at all, and thought people who believed in UFOs were crazy or stupid. And I was really rude about it, honestly. I just thought the stars were too far away and I didn't want to hear it. Uh, it was 1986 when I heard this report on the news, like mid-November, a pilot over Alaska had seen a UFO uh, so it, his co-pilot and uh, the people on the plane, it was a com commercial Japanese airliner. And this UFO tracked the plane for about an hour. They requested a course change, which was granted, and the UFO still followed them. It was caught on radar. There were ground witnesses. It turned out to be a really good case. At the time on the news, they talked about it for maybe one minute. And it was all tongue in cheek, very kind of joking, nervous laughter, and they moved on. 
but they did show the pilot. And I thought, wow, this pilot just threw away his career, just like that, is what I thought. And that he must be hallucinating a reflection off the ice cap or something. So I just made a series of false assumptions and tried to move on, but made the mistake of <laughs> asking people about it. Uh, my family, my friends and coworkers, I thought it would just be an interesting subject of conversation to uh, talk about this crazy pilot. And I had a number of people in my family who had seen UFOs. And that was a real shock. Uh, friends as well, co-workers too, people I'd known and loved for most of my life or certainly years and years and years. I knew they weren't lying. So when my brother said he chased a UFO while driving in his car with his two friends, I didn't know what to think. I'm like, Mark, Mark, what did you see? He said it was a metallic saucer, little lights on it, a dome on top. It was hovering, zigzagging, darting around. They chased after it. Other cars were chasing it. I ended up talking to his two friends <laughs> because I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. And uh, yeah, it kind of just snowballed from there. I had a sister-in-law who had a sighting. She had two friends with her. Another family friend who also had another witness with her at the time. Another friend, he had apparent missing time. Again, he was not alone. I always thought people who saw UFOs were alone. None of the people I talked to, not one, was alone uh, when they had their sighting. So it did was you, Did you ever have an experience yourself? Uh, not at that point. I have now. I've had a number of them. Okay, so so you, you basically became interested in the topic. Uh, you said it was around the late 80s? Yeah, 86. Okay, 80s. Well, you know what? That's cool because um, my podcast is Cold War-centric. And I say that with um, because that's what gave me the the impetus to start doing a podcast. I had to have something that I know about that I can talk about confidently. And that's right at the tail end of the cold war. So that ties in really nice. I always try to find a, a way to connect the, the guests journey and their experience and what they're talking about with the cold war in some way. So I, I think it's just kind of a little bit of poetry that you started your your journey of researching and trying to find answers about the UFO phenomena during the last final years of the Cold War. Right. Yeah, there was a big shift in the world at that point, I think. How old, how old were you around that time? I was very young, actually. In 1986, I was 21 years old. So kind of fell into this when I was very young. Uh, yeah, that is, uh, you know, most people in their 20s are just interested in going out and partying and, you know, meeting their their first life partner. <laughs> <You know? laughs> because right. a lot of times that, that life partner will change multiple times throughout that person's life. But uh, so you, you took an interest in something that was uh, kind of, plaguing your friends and family and decided to go out and search for the answers and what have you found over 
the course of uh, almost 30 plus years of, of doing studies in that area. Uh, well, initially, I just wanted to disprove the phenomena and let my friends and family know that they couldn't possibly be right, even though I kind of knew that they were, having talked to, you know, 25% of the people I knew had had these experiences. So I bought all the books. That was my first step. Subscribed to all the magazines, joined the UFO groups, started going to conventions, and really just immersing myself. I dived into the deep end and was really shocked to find out that this is a real phenomenon. That alone just still shocks me that uh, our planet is being visited by extraterrestrials and it's kind of sliding under the radar to a certain extent. I was shocked to find out how much evidence there was. You know, this had been studied for decades. There was mountains of evidence, photographs, landing traces, medical evidence electromagnetic evidence, all kinds of good physical evidence. Uh, so that was a real shock. It took me a good five years to really say, okay, this is real. I know that for sure. And uh, that's when I started to, you know, do firsthand investigations. I started interviewing everyone formally, started going out into the field, looking for these things myself, uh, started writing articles, started speaking at conventions before I knew it, I was going on the radio and it was 10 years into my research. I put out my first book on UFO healing cases, people who claim to have been healed as a result of a UFO encounter. So that was kind of interesting to me because it was physical evidence and had been largely ignored by the UFO field. And uh, yeah, now 35 years later, I'm still doing this. I've got 27 books on this subject and the paranormal, which I think is related to a certain extent. And I'm um, absolutely convinced it's a real phenomena. I believe our government knows this as well. It's the cover up. That was another thing that shocked me. Um, I came in this field so naive, thinking, yeah, if our government knows about this, they would disclose it. Well, they know and they did not disclose. And we know they know. This is not speculation. From the Freedom of Information Act, we have obtained documents from virtually every intelligence agency in the United States, whether it's the FBI, CIA, NSA, you name it, where they take this subject very seriously. So, yeah, I, I've learned a lot over this, these years and kind of focusing more towards uh, people who've had direct contact because I think you can get a lot of information there and also trying to educate people and bust what open this UFO cover up as best as I can. Well, hats off to you for the research and dedicating your so much time and, and effort into trying to find answers for this and then sharing that information with the world. Uh, there's more and more people are starting to do this now. Um, after 2017, when the New York Times broke that article about the Nimitz incident, I think a lot more people are starting to open their eyes to the reality of this topic. But people like you that have been doing the hard work for such a long time, 
you know, it cannot be overstated how important that work has been to bringing information to light and keeping this topic relevant over that, you know, extended period of time, even in the face of ridicule and um, government cover up, like you said. Uh, I, I completely agree with everything that you said. And as far as the paranormal aspect being somehow connected, I think there is a growing body of evidence to support that. And one of the places to look is Skinwalker Ranch. And what they're doing out there is really important work. And it's, uh, I think that if they can get answers, I think that that is going to connect some dots for people that uh, have, have never been connected in the past. I think it's really interesting what they're doing out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, there are certain areas all across our, you know, the United States and the planet, really, which are like that. Areas where it's not just UFOs, it's a sort of a paranormal vectoring place where all this stuff kind of intersects. It's very strange. Uh, and so that brings me to the, um, uh, unless you had something else you wanted to say about your research. Well, one thing I would emphasize is that I think a lot more people are seeing UFOs than people in the general public realize and even being taken on board, you know, onboard UFO experiences. We used to think we're very rare, but now there's increasing signs that it's not as rare as we thought. One in 40, one in 50 people, perhaps. Uh, so that's a lot. That's millions upon millions. That would be one thing I would emphasize. And what do you say to people that scoff at, at the idea of all of this? Yeah, it's very hard to penetrate someone who's kind of made up their mind, who's skeptical. And because I've been there and you don't want to look at the evidence and there's a sector of our population who are, you know, very well educated, perfectly normal people who are just not there yet. I think one of the reasons is, is because there has been an, a very concerted effort on our government to cover this up and debunk the phenomena and make it look ridiculous. And it's been very effective. A lot of money, a lot of time, all our tax dollars, well, not all, but you know what I mean? Our yeah. tax dollars. Sure. Uh, well, all, all of the, the millions or billions of tax dollars that go into not only covering up the phenomena, but also what they're doing as far as research and development of new technology from that. Yeah, yeah. That and also believing in UFOs kind of changes your worldview to a huge extent. I mean, it's, it's one of those core belief topics like you know, religion and sex and politics. It's very personal to people. So I think that's another reason. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a huge, there still is a huge stigma attached to it, to the belief in, in the phenomena, let alone the experiencing of the phenomena. You know, if you see lights in the sky, well, that could easily be explained as something natural or something man-made. Um, you know, you could brush it off fairly easy but somebody comes to you and says they were abducted now that's a different a, a whole different ball game yeah <laughs> that really changes the, the the thinking process for somebody who's faced with or you know face to face with a person who believes that they've been taken a, a, away in a alien craft and you know yeah they go through double trauma kind of 
exactly. first they have the experience and they have to deal with the aftermath of people. Yeah. So yeah. it's changing. I, I do see definitely changes over the last 35 years. Um, yeah, and I agree. And it's changing for the better. It is a slow change. But I think in the last few years, uh, there, there are some organizations and some people that are really doing some, some work, important work, to bring this stuff to light, um, to bring more awareness into Congress, um, to basically force the hand of the Department of Defense to make changes in their policies. I think there's a lot of important, really important work that's being done by people that have the connections. Now, see, I'm, I'm not saying the work that you have done in the past 35 years or people preceding you was not important. It's, it's vital to this process. But the people that, are, um, that I'm referring to, are, I'm talking about the, the people in TTSA and other organizations similar to that, the people at Skyhub, they have connections in places that can pass legislation uh, and move the the needle a lot further along than than researchers can do in the in the private sector. Yeah, exactly. It's time to really throw some official attention at this. So, so I'm pretty excited. The Pentagon has done some recent disclosures, which are very. Very much baby steps, I think. Uh, yes, I agree. I, I agree. It's going to be slow, a slow process because they've got so many other things to work on. Uh, you know, this is this is just a, a, a really minor issue to them. Now, how it would become a major issue is by people becoming unified in their in the conversation. There's so much division in in the whole community among people that are doing research, people that have experienced these phenomena. There's just a, a huge, uh, and in some ways, it seems to me like a growing chasm between the two sides of the argument. And when they should be uniting in their efforts to put pressure on Congress and the military to be more forthcoming with this information but they just can't seem to get along. They can't agree on anything. Yeah, well, that's the nature of all fields of science, really. We're, we're a political species. I came into this field, again, really naive and was not really welcomed into it like I had hoped. There was a lot of politics among the UFO groups. That shocked me. And a lot of different... I love that there are different researchers out there focusing on different things. And that there are people out there who are equipped to sort of pressure the government and uh, move towards you know open official disclosure. Uh, so other others focus on you know more the science of the craft, how they travel between stars. Um, others focus on you know onboard experiences or first-hand cases. That's what I put a lot of my efforts towards. But, you know, I've also written a series of books about each state, but let's see, four or five states now, California, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, and New York, kind of like history books, because I feel like this subject needs to be taken seriously. So those were written, you know, very much like a history book style, telling the entire history of UFOs in each state. 
since then, a bunch of other researchers are picking up uh, and writing books on their own states. So that, that's great news for me. I do see great strides in this field. And I think we're, it's going to continue. UFOs are not going away. We know that. Yeah, I think the more information that's available to people, uh, the easier it is going to be for them to make the shift from being a non-believer to a believer and to accepting the, the reality that these things are here. I went through my own uh, change of, of thinking not long before the New York Times article came out. I, I would say probably 2015 is when I really changed my, my thinking on the topic. And it was, oddly enough, it was a book about Skinwalker Ranch that changed my my mind about the whole phenomena um and it was written by george knapp and colm callaher yep. and it, it was about the investigation that uh robert bigelow did out there on skinwalker ranch in the in the late 90s i think uh and just just hearing firsthand accounts of scientists and critical thinkers and people that normally would not accept uh you know these type of experiences as anything other than fantasy or hallucination exactly yeah there's a long list of astronomers who have seen you have i mean major astronomers clyde tombo discoverer of pluto he saw one and, really uh, i died yeah i i didn't know that yeah, it's crazy. We've had pre presidents, President Carter, Reagan. We've had governors, Governor Fife Symington, Governor, I think, G Gilligan of Illinois, senators, Senator Russell of Virginia. <laughs> you know, I, I knew about some of that. I, I figured Carter was probably kind of crazy. Um, That's what I thought, too. <laughs> yeah. Th this is just the way that I used to think. And, you know, I was, I was very... I, you know, I didn't make fun of people. I was always very like cordial with people who told me about stuff like that, but I, and I didn't make fun of them, but I just didn't believe them. I thought there was another explanation to it. When I saw, when I read that book though, uh, that really changed my way of thinking. And when the uh, New York times article came out, that just kind of blew the doors off for me. And uh, it made it okay for me to talk to other people about what, you know, my, my way of thinking on the topic is what it, what it allowed me to do. So, yeah. Um, you know, and I, I didn't mean to get too much into my story because this is, you know, this episode is about you, your journey and your experiences. But um, I did want to give you a little bit of an idea of, you know, where I'm coming from so that you know, that we're on the same, kind of on the same uh, playing field, at least, you know, where sure. uh, as far as thinking goes, I don't do anywhere close to the amount of research and investigation that you do. Um, I've just read a few books. I watched some stuff on uh, YouTube and <laughs> some stuff on television. Um, whereas you're out there in the field talking to experiencers, uh, actually doing i don't know have you done forensic investigation too collecting evidence and that kind of stuff um 
not as much as I would like. You know, I've had to work full time through mo most of this. It's just just this year that I'm only working part time, getting to devote more time to UFO research. But it's been a weekends and evenings type of thing for decades. <laughs> so it's difficult. Uh, and uh, yeah, some cases are better than others. Getting one with sort of physical evidence is pretty rare. Uh, but it does happen. Yeah. So some of the witnesses that, that you've come in contact with have come to you directly. But have you how hard is it for you to find witnesses and experiencers and seek them out to hear their story? And what's the process of doing that? Right. You know, it's never been what I would call difficult. If you want to talk to someone who's seen a UFO, it's really just a matter of asking. Because finding out that I knew so many people who had had this experience was how it began for me. And I'm like, all right, let's just, I heard a quote from J. Allen Hynek, uh, who's, you know, the father of ufology, he's often described part of Project Blue Book, the astronomical consultant. He said one in 40 people have had an onboard experience. And I thought, no, no way. You know, that's way too many. I know 40 people. And that's when I started interviewing everybody that I knew who had had an experience. And that's how it started. I thought, wow, you know, there must be a lot of people who are having this experience. And I started getting lots of referrals from, you know, friends of friends or family. Uh, I sort of became the clearinghouse for people to go to. This was back in the 80s and early 90s when it wasn't quite as popular as it is today. But from that point, you know, I'd go to conventions and UFO meetings or lots of people there who had had uh, sightings. And uh, when I started writing articles and putting up books and getting a website, uh, and going on the radio, I pretty much had a steady stream of people contacting me um, from you know so, some of these avenues. I mean, I go to speak at a convention and there'd be people in the audience who really want to speak to me because they had that experience. Uh, so that's, it's never been a problem finding witnesses. They come out of the woodwork. Okay, so I've talked with other um, researchers and, and um, people like yourself who've um, interviewed eyewitnesses. Um, I've talked to, to people who've worked in MUFON and people who've done it independently, uh, not even, you know, not part of MUFON, but um, one of the important things that anybody who's interested in uh, doing this type of research is that when you're talking to these witnesses, you have to remember that these people have experienced a trauma and they don't really want to come out and talk about this. So you have to give them uh, um, enough confidence in you that you're not going to make fun of them. How do, you, how do you put people at ease when you first start to talk to them about it? I mean, I'm sure people know who you are because of your, your platform and your exposure in the community. But if somebody didn't know you, what, what kind of things would you say to them? And how would you set them at ease about coming out and talking to you about it? Yeah, I usually give people my background is, is what I tell them, how I used to be very skeptical of this and then learned that my family was having experiences. And uh, I think right from the beginning, you can sort of get a feel for a person. I mean, I've had people who were, called me who were in tears 
and thought, you know, they were at the end of their rope. Seriously, they needed help. And in cases like that, I'm much more inclined to just sort of do my best to offer them the information that can comfort them rather than, you know, try and get the story out of them. Uh, that's what, how I initially approach my, my primary objective is to help the witness. And I've had a number of witnesses call me and be like, wow, you're the first, you know, researcher who, you know, didn't just want my story right off the bat. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm interested in a person's story, but yeah, the primary thing is to help people because there is trauma involved in a lot of this. And some of these people have had very scary experiences. Not everyone. I'm getting a lot more cases now of people who don't reach out for contact because they, they're not traumatized. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't need help. <laughs> they had a very friendly experience and so, which they've kept to themselves. Uh, but people who have a scary experience, they need help. Uh, and uh, I try to be there for them. That's the first thing I do. Always do an initial interview. You know, I let people know without divulging too much information. As they, as they tell their story, I'm like, yes, I've heard that before. And uh, they're not always happy to hear that. <laughs> Generally, when someone's had a really extensive experience, they'll start with some caveat of like, you know, I'm not crazy. I've got a good job. There's no history of mental illness in my family. I don't do drugs and this sort of thing. And they're very hesitant about revealing their story. And they, they test the waters, you know, seeing if I'm going to ridicule them or not. And uh, as I assure them that, no, I really want to hear your story and I've heard it before, that's when they really start to open up. So I've, over the years, I've learned how to do this much better and uh, how to interview someone. But in, in the beginning, it was hard. Yeah, those are good insights. Uh, I think that uh, if you approach it with the, the attitude that you're um, interested in helping people, that is going to make uh, your job as the interviewer that much more uh, easy uh, to, to build a, um, a level of trust with the person. Uh, that's, that's really good um, that you suggested that. Yeah. Yeah. Many people I've, you know, I've who contact me, I don't write about their stories. That's not what they're calling me for. They're not interested in that. They just want to swap notes and tell their story to someone. A lot of people don't have anyone to talk about because they haven't gone public, even with their own family. So they just want to talk to someone. I try to be there for them. It's only a, it's a smaller percentage who agree for an interview, a formal interview. And when I ever interview someone, it's got, got to be on record. You know, if they don't agree to you know having a recording. I can't really write about their case, not extensively, because I, I feel like I need a record, but I'm just not making this stuff up. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get too far ahead, but I want to bring us up to 1953, Kingman, Arizona. Just outside the town of Arizona, there was an incident or a series of incidents that involved UFO crash, uh, a UFO crash and possible landings. Can you give me just a little summary of, of what occurred out there? Yeah, this is, I call it the Paradise Valley crash. It's also called the Kingman uh, incident, and, but definitely one of the primary UFO crash incidents in the United States. 
everyone always talks about Roswell. Uh, it's not just Roswell. There was also the Aztec UFO incident in New Mexico. Uh, there was a Kecksburg, Pennsylvania crash. And that was 1965. But yeah, back in the late 40s and early 50s, there was a lot of these incidents. And one of the top five, I'm going to say, is definitely the Kingman crash. And there was rumors of it from the very beginning. I think, uh, let's see, it was Frank Scully's book, Behind the Flying Saucers, which was, I believe, the first UFO book published in the United States. And the first to claim that there were crashed UFOs. And the book did really well. It was a bestseller. But it was viciously attacked within the UFO field. And at that time, even UFO researchers did not take accounts of UFO crashes seriously. And uh, they believed Scully had actually been hoaxed. Turned out later, uh, there was evidence that it had been a sort of government disinformation campaign to make him look ridiculous. And now a lot of researchers are looking back into his claims. And Frank Scully was the first to mention this Paradise Valley, Arizona crash. It was just a couple of sentences mentioning that there had been a crash in this area. And uh, the craft, I think he said it was about 30 some feet in diameter with two deceased extraterrestrials in it. And that's all we really knew for a long, long time. But researchers started to get more hints of this. I think the first major researcher to really get a clue of this incident was Richard Hall, um, who was a very prominent researcher. And back in 1964, he spoke with a commander, an army commander, who said that back in 1953, a UFO had crashed in Arizona Four bodies were recovered, and the craft was 30 feet in diameter. And according to Richard Hall, the guy was definitely absolutely sincere. So this is, I'd say, the first real big break in the case came from Raymond Fowler, He's a Massachusetts-based researcher, probably best known for researching the Betty Andreessen case, but really a great researcher, one of my heroes for sure in this field. And he was able to interview a firsthand witness who at the time went under the pseudonym Fritz Werner. We now know his name is Arthur G. Stancil. And he was the first kind of firsthand witness to go public about what had happened in May of 1953. He was in Stancil. Arthur Stancil was an engineer manager at the Air Material Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, anyone in the UFO field knows about Wright-Patterson. This is where we do all our UFO back engineering. Well, not all of it, but this is supposedly where most of our debris is shipped off to, is Wright-Patterson. This is where we study foreign technology, and that includes, apparently, extraterrestrials. So Arthur, St Arthur Stancil came from there, and... Uh, at the time of this incident, he was actually in Nevada working on studying blast effects at Frenchman Flats when this UFO incident happened. And he was called to the site with about 40 other scientists to assist in the recovery. And it was Arthur Stansel's job to calculate the velocity and the trajectory of this object 
based on the you know its structure and how deeply it had gotten into the ground and the entire blast pattern. So he's taken out to the site in a bus with blacked out windows, told to concentrate only on his assigned duties and not look around. And that's what he did. He described pretty much what uh, Frank Scully had said, that there was this 30 foot object, kind of oval shaped. It uh, was definitely metallic, looked like brushed aluminum. It was pretty much undamaged. And there was an open hatch, which is what Scully had actually said, no apparent landing gear. So he studied it and estimated that this craft had struck the ground at about 1200 miles per hour, just based on how deeply it was buried into the ground and said that this was obviously not anything that we had built on earth. So it was like tear, a teardrop shaped cigar, like a streamlined cigar is how he described it. And he did manage to get a look inside and saw the dead body of a four foot tall human-like creature in a silver metallic suit. And it apparently looked like it had been burned on its face because its face was all brown. And yeah, once all the scientists, he saw the other scientists going around there doing their thing. And then afterwards they were each taken aside and an Air Force Colonel made them sign the official Secrets Act. And they had to swear under oath never to reveal what they saw. But he did talk with another scientist who was able to look inside the object and saw tiny little swiveling seats and a strange looking instrument panel. So that was the real big break in the case. And there were others to follow. How, do you, how did you track down yourself? Or did you just read about this from other researchers? Yeah, yeah. This was pretty much an armchair research project for me. Uh, I, I didn't talk to any firsthand witnesses in this particular incident. I have talked to other government whistleblowers with similar stories. About this incident? Or other other incidents. Other incidents. Okay. So uh, yeah, that's the thing about these UFO crash incidents. Here we have the very best evidence there is. I mean, this is not a sighting. This is not an abduction. This is no, not a landing or or anything like. This is the craft in our hands. And the frustrating thing about it, it was we don't have access to it. And the very best evidence, these crash retrievals often rely on just a handful of witnesses. There are literally hundreds of these crash retrieval stories, hundreds. And most of them have just one or two, three, five witnesses. This Paradise Valley crash is different because it's got multiple sources talking about it. And that's why I think it's a much better case than most. What I find interesting about this case is that it's almost um, it's almost glossed over. And I think in some cases, it's actually confused with the Roswell incident. Uh, it, it seems to me like a, a case like this should have a lot more coverage, a lot more exposure, but it really seems to get kind of pushed aside for, for more, um, uh, you know, for, for cases that are more well-known. Yeah. I think the problem is it, it came, it occurred at a time when there was a very active, very clamped down policy, a very strong cover up. Our government had learned from Roswell, which was almost bust wide open. I mean, they released that 
press release, as you may recall, UFO crashed and then took it back. If they had not taken it back, we'd be living in a very different world. Yeah. But they took it back. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, and uh, from that point, it was a policy of like, no, we're not telling anybody. And I think this crash, you know, Roswell crash has some 50 books written about it. I'm not sure there's even one book that concentrates on this incident alone. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. All right. Aztec has a couple of books on it. Uh, I'm not sure about the uh, Hexburg incident. I, I know there's some books that do mention it, but I don't think there's one that focuses on it exclusively. And it should. If, you know, someone's got us. Unfortunately, this occurred, what now, almost 70 years ago. Okay, so I've, I've done some um, preliminary, I guess, I, it's hard for me to even call it research because all I've done is read a few, um, a, a few articles about this incident. But what I've gathered is there's a couple of different things that could have brought that craft down. Um, what, what in, in your opinion, is the reason that this craft so, okay, uh, a person who's a critical thinker is going to say, okay, if this, if this craft is able to travel, you know, uh, hundreds or thousands or possibly even millions of light years from uh, possibly another galaxy, you know, more, more than likely within our own galaxy, but even possibly from another galaxy, but to get here, it travels through or it, it's able to avoid uh, pulsar bursts, um, solar radiation, and it gets from where it started to here without incident. But as soon as it gets here to to the Earth, it crashes. What what do you think could have brought something down? Yeah, it's a, a great question, and something a lot of people have asked. Because uh, with the Roswell crash, uh, there was a storm going on at the time the story is that it was struck by lightning and with this uh kingman crash this craft was largely intact and uh, we don't know what brought it down there is evidence in other cases that uh, our government has tried to shoot these things down using laser like weapons or particle beam weapon type things uh, there's some possible evidence that perhaps our own radar affected with their navigation and that may have brought down the Roswell crash. Uh, but yeah, we don't know in this case. Uh, it's very strange because if we're dealing with a species with that advanced of technology, it would seem that they, if they were to even have an incident, a crash, they could swoop down and recover it themselves fairly effectively. And we're not seeing that in a lot of these cases. So this has caused some researchers to say that the Kingman crash and perhaps others is not a crash as we think of it, not even a crash landing. It was uh, more like a gift to our government. And this is actually what Bill Uhouse says. Bill Uhouse is a whistleblower who's fairly prominent in the field, coming from Area 51 in Nevada, saying that he worked there in Area 51 to reverse engineer craft and that one of them was, in fact, this Kingman craft. And uh, said that 
it's basically it was given to us by the ets and to reverse engineer i'll tell you i'll tell you right now and i've, I've actually heard that before uh, in my mind if it's a gift it's a gift to humanity and for the U.S. government to hoard that technology and keep it from the world, that even frustrates me more. Yeah. Yep. And I think that's, I think our, this is a very touchy subject. No, I, but I do feel like our government does know about this. They've known about it from the beginning. All their denials are completely disingenuous and frankly insulting at this point. We know they've got these craft and uh, we know they've had face-to-face -face meetings with ETs. There's the 1954 incident at Edwards Air Force Base where President Eisenhower allegedly had face-to-face -face contact. There's numerous cases like that across the United States at Holloman Air Force Base and others where there's been alleged face-to-face -face diplomatic relations with extraterrestrials. Numerous accounts coming out of Area 51 not only Bill Uhouse, who said he'd talk to ETs face-to-face, -to -face, but a lot of this. So our government already knows this is real and are having face-to-face -face contact and has have these craft. And I think that's why we're seeing a very strong sort of grassroots movement on part of the UFOs to contact people and take them on board and let them know it's real. And these waves of sightings like Phoenix Lights or Gulf Breeze or Hudson Valley or across the world, really, Bel the Belgium wave. And... There was a huge wave in France in 1954, I think it was. Uh, so I feel like our the ETs are trying to get our government to disclose. That's one of their agendas. And uh, we'll see how this all rolls out. But our government is being forced into disclosure because they're just neck deep in this. They, they really have to if they want to maintain any credibility and control this subject. You know, I just had a thought, man, and this is pure, pure speculation. Let's say, let's say you want to get the attention of people. So you do something that is, you know, you're not killing people, but you're doing something that's disturbing. You, what you're doing is you're trying to elicit a response from the people, not only the people, but the government. And you're doing things that are controversial and, and troubling to people in order to get people, um, I don't know, to show enough interest to actually put pressure on the government to force their hand at bringing forth disclosure. What do you think about that idea? Did I articulate that very well? <laughs> yeah, I think that's precisely what's going on. I, I, I really do. And uh, I don't think ETs are trying to scare people or trying to hurt them. We see no evidence of that. And while the onboard experience can be scary, that physical examination, sometimes when people are experiencing pain, the ETs will take action and take the pain away. And there are a lot of very positive things that happen. I'm not worried that they're hostile or going to take over because by and large, the very worst we see is that, you know, scary physical examination but when people move beyond that fear factor they're often treated very differently they're given a tour of the ufo they're shown the engine room told how it works they are given warnings and sort of uh yeah i guess warnings would be the best word 
about nuclear proliferation, pollution, our warlike ways, uh, upcoming hurricanes and earthquakes, this sort of thing. They seem very interested in uh, educating us. And also there's a whole spiritual component to all of this. A lot of people come away from their experiences spiritually transformed and uh, really feel like this is a positive experience for them ultimately. So I don't think that, I, you know, the ET behavior is very much like ours. It falls under the same umbrella as human behavior. It's skewed a little bit more towards the positive, honestly, uh, I think. So I'm not worried about how this all rolls out. I'm pretty excited. That, the, that's a great way to segue into another area that I wanted to discuss with you. And that is, you know, it's, if you feel that the, the behavior of these ATs are somewhat humanistic or human-like, um, do you think that they are actually beings from another world or do you think it's more likely that they are from an alternate universe or even possibly a different dimension yeah this is easy to speculate here we do have some firsthand you know i don't firsthand information by that i mean you know direct from experiencers or from the ets talking to experiencers often they're very ETs are pretty tight-lipped about where they come from because people have asked. And they will say stuff like, oh, we're from Mars or we're from a place you don't know about yet or it's not important or you wouldn't understand and things like this. Uh, so they're sometimes pretty coy and evasive or just outright lying. And so it's been very difficult. We don't know where they come from for the most part. What we are dealing with pretty much universally are humanoids, people like us, but of slightly different shape and size. You know, they have eyes, they have arms and legs, a head. That I find fascinating. Uh, I am convinced that we're dealing with extraterrestrials in the classic sense in most cases. I don't want to say- From another planet. From another planet, from another star system. Um, some have named like Orion, Cygnus and the Andromeda, which is a you know a galaxy, so that's a little strange. Uh, Zeta Reticula has come up in more than you know the Betty and Barney Hill case, so that seems to be one of them. The Pleiades, as well. But I find it fascinating. We deal with a pretty much universal humanoid shape, whether it's grays or praying mantis or insect-like or human looking just flat out just like us which really raises serious questions about our own origins now that's what i think we're dealing with in most of these cases because we have the craft i mean we have the bodies we've got landing traces you know these things appear on radar we've got metal fragments we know this is a physical phenomena However, you know, they, these craft are very technologically advanced. As far as we can tell, they can defy physics as we know it. They're obviously not defying physics. They've just found a way around certain obstacles that we haven't found yet in terms of you know, turning at right angles and turning invisible or moving through solid objects. 
which has caused, I think, some researchers to just say, oh, these are interdimensional. And I am of the opinion that it's not mutually exclusive. You know, being interdimensional does not preclude it, them from being extraterrestrial. They may have just mastered how to travel interdimensionally. And I think they probably have, because how traveling between stars is in, in the conventional way that we think of it is not going to be easy for anybody. They must, these ETs have clearly found a faster than light travel or a subspace type travel or interdimensional way of traveling through, between the stars, if that's where they're coming from. That's kind of my line of thinking as well. Um, <clears throat> because going from, let's say, let's keep it as a, another star system within our own galaxy, could take hundreds of years, you know, even if they're traveling at light speed. Right. Um, and if they have discovered wormhole technology, wouldn't that, in essence, be interdimensional travel? Exactly. And this is what experiencers are basically told that, yeah, that they can do interdimensional travel, but they do have problems with space travel and radiation and dealing with that. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of obstacles and some appear to have mastered it better than others. Uh, right. That's the, that's if there are multiple uh, species that are visiting. Right. So that, that makes total sense. Um, but I'm not going to out, you know, rule out any theory at this point, because we don't know. Uh, time travelers is another theory that's gaining increasing popularity. I think that would go in line with the uh, multi-universe theory. Yeah, uh, because which... they're coming from another timeline. They could be like a futuristic uh, version of humans that have figured out how to travel across um, time. And yeah. if, if, if you've mastered faster than light technology, well, there you go. I mean, if you can travel basically anywhere in the universe, this is when you know, we know from phys you know, quantum physics and physics, that would probably allow you to do some level of time travel yeah i yeah i agree and uh we, we do see that too in first-hand cases where people are like being abducted by these guys and time has apparently stopped or they can telescope it and have people have a very long experience and come back minutes later and weird things like that yeah, or the Travis Walton case where he was gone for a, a week or so, and he thought he'd only been gone a few hours. Yeah, I wonder about that. It's understandable for whether, you know, whether these beings are from another planet, another dimension, another universe, or even like ultra terrestrials that have been here since the beginning of time. They've been here on Earth, just not visible to us. Um and they're just so far advanced from us that we have only had intermittent contact with them. That's the ultra terrestrial or um, hyper terrestrial or something. You know, there's a, there's a term for it, but that's basically yeah. the ancient alien theory. There's also a, a camp of, you know, a school of thought that these aren't extraterrestrials at all. Uh, that it's some sort of intelligence that wears different masks. Potential. Yes, yes, I've heard some of that too. The consciousness um, right. tracks cultures, and these some of the proponents of this theory are, you know, very well-known researchers like Jacques Vallée and J Jerome Clark, and 
others who said, no, I don't think they're extraterrestrials, not all of them. And I have to say, you know, there's probably, there's some good evidence that th these things do, or certainly have the ability to shapeshift or put on a disguise or screen memories and appear however they want to, to appear. But I'm still convinced that some of these are extraterrestrial. I mean, if we have the craft and the bodies, all bets are off. We know at least some of these are ETs from other planets. It could be all of the above. You know, it could be several of these theories are true. It could be, you know, that um, it, it's just a, it's a, a number of possibilities. And until we know, we just don't know. Yeah, What's, I totally agree. Yeah, there's probably angels out there, you know, and there's demonic phenomena. There's all kinds of spirits and this can get lumped together. So we have to be very careful. True. Yeah, exactly. Very true. The spiritual aspect of this whole phenomena is a, a completely different discussion than um, what we have time to get into right now, but it is an important part of this whole topic. Um, I won't discount that, but I just don't want to go deep down that <laughs> rabbit hole because, uh, man, we've already been at this for an hour. I want to respect your time. And um, the that said, uh, there's I have a friend here in Las Vegas who is, his name is Jeremy McGowan. He has had an experience of his own which he shared on the TV series Unidentified. Um, it involved uh, his service in the military when he was in Jordan, and he saw something uh, traversing the, in, in the upper atmosphere above him through night vision goggles. Um, he's shared his story several times on different shows, including mine, and... Um, he is really getting involved in um, with the uh, organization called Skyhub. Are you familiar with that? Uh, not super familiar, no. They're developing an open source uh, multi-tracking, uh, multi-platform tracking system that uh, looks at the sky using different sensors um <clears throat> to track objects that are not easily identified runs that data into a central database correlates it catalogs it tries to put a label on what it is and if it's something that's unexplained then it goes into a, a different um a, you know a different part of the database uh, i don't know all the specifics Jeremy knows a lot more about it than I do because he's been talking with them firsthand and he's building his own uh, mobile platform to basically point up to a section of the sky and just let it sit there and track and record the data that it, that it uh, sees. So if a plane is flying through um, the area that's being observed, it will identify that as a plane almost instantly. Um, if it's something that is not known, then it gets sorted and parsed through the database. This, this central database that's being managed by, you know, a group of scientists and IT professionals who really know what they're doing. So I encourage you to look at, into what Skyhub is because it's an important um, con contributor to the, to, to the topic 
and to the study of the phenomenon, but also to the, the, um, the pushing of disclosure. But the reason I mentioned Jeremy is because I called him this morning uh, to talk to him and ask him if he had any specific questions to ask you, um, you know, to, because I had my own list of questions already, but I wanted to get his uh, input on some of it because he's coming from things at a little bit of a different angle than I am. Um, now, he, he, when I told him about the Kingman crash, he wasn't even aware of it. See, he's not a UFO guy at all. He is, um, uh, let me take that back. He was not a UFO guy, you know, other than the experience he had back in the uh, mid-90s that he, that he talked about on the TV series. But he, uh, he kept that under his coat, pretty much. He didn't really talk to people about it until just recently. And now that he's starting to talk to people and starting to hear other people's experiences, he's really starting to get interested in, and get, becoming more involved in the, in the search, the research and study of the phenomena. Wow. Uh, when I talked to him about you and the Kingman incident, which he had no knowledge of before I even mentioned it to him, he asked a couple of really interesting questions. And one of them was, why were these crafts hanging out over Kingman? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. And uh, I think probably it's... Uh, because of its uh, proximity to where we're doing a lot of nuclear research. That's a uh, good point. I honestly do, because New Mexico has the most UFO crashes of pretty much any other state, and that's where it's really centered. But Nevada as well has a, a famous UFO crash incident. And, uh, Is that the Ely crash? Uh, the Las Vegas crash is what it's usually called. Wait, whoa, okay. We're going to have to do another episode where we come back and talk about that in depth because I didn't even know there was a crash in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a very well-known incident. Okay, that will be to be continued because I, I really want to dig into that one. But uh, let, let's get back to the Cayman. Like, so the, the proximity to the, the, well, the nuclear test site in Nevada is, is only about 60 minutes north of Las Vegas, which would put it about two and a half hours north of Kingman. Right, which is two minutes as the UFO flies. Yeah, or Not less, even. right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that does make sense. I, I've also heard that there was a radar array erected um, at that time in that area, in the Kingman area. But I uh, don't know a whole lot about that. Do you know anything about this? Uh, no, no, but that would make sense because, you know, the one near Socorro, New Mexico, there's that big radar array uh, has also been mentioned as, you know, possibly being a factor in the Roswell crash. Okay. So there are multiple reasons why it would have been either flying past Kingman and just had some kind of technical difficulty and and crash landed I, I think the idea that it was a gift is a really compelling and very interesting idea oh, but why drop it in the middle of the desert outside of a small town 
in the middle of, you know, Northern Arizona. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced of the gift theory, but it does answer the questions why it wasn't scooped up themselves by the ETs. That's true. But but maybe they're, you know, ha ha couldn't do it for whatever reason. Uh, but there were humanoid bodies there who were apparently deceased. Um, according to some sources, there was one, one alive. Uh, so I find it's hard to believe that the ETs are just going to, you know, kill their own kind and just give it you know it just doesn't look like that it's what happened to me that does uh, seem a little like here here's some technology and um are these these courageous um members of our race sacrificed themselves to bring it to you yeah no i mean from the other sources that we've come out you know since the arthur stancil seemed to indicate that this thing did crash there was one lady, Judy Wolcott, who came forward with her husband's story. Uh, a week after she got the letter, he was killed in Vietnam, which might not be a coincidence. Uh, but Judy Wolcott's husband claimed to have been among the first to crash site. He was on duty at the air control tower at Kingman when he and other personnel tracked this unknown object and they watched as it quickly lost altitude and disappeared from the scope. There's moments later, there was a huge flash of light some distance outside of the city. And he and another group of men piled into their Jeeps and drove off to where this object had impacted the ground, searching for it, and finally came upon it. And they said, like the other witnesses, there was no apparent damage. And they were approaching it when the military officials arrived and ordered them off the site. And he and the others were taken back to the base and told that nothing had happened. They'd seen nothing. They were not to speak about it. Uh, but at the time, it was the, whole, uh, the buzz of the base. And he learned that other people had seen the bodies as well. And uh, he kept this quiet for years and years, and then wrote this letter to his wife and was killed one week later in Vietnam. That could have been a coincidence, but coincidences are rare indeed. I don't know. There's just been a lot of unusual deaths associated with some of these UFO crash incidents. So that's true. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I'm I'm as open to going down the conspiracy rabbit hole as anybody else, um, because it's fun to speculate. I, you know. But what um, what I'm looking for and what I'm interested in is more of the hard evidence. You know, the witness testimony is important. Um, but, and another question that my friend Jeremy asked was, where's the physical evidence? How come we don't have any like tangible, real physical evidence anywhere right. except according, you know, apparently with the U S government, uh, the truth is we do, we do have physical evidence. Uh, there was, there's bits and pieces of it. Uh, there was the famous Socorro UFO landing in 1964, in New Mexico, with police officer Lonnie Zamora. Uh, that left metal fragments, which were analyzed and shown to be unusual. There was the Ubatuba, Brazil uh, UFO crash uh, that was off the coast of uh, Ubatuba, and metal fragments were retrieved from there, highly purified magnesium. Uh, there's a number of cases involving what's known as angel hair, 
which we don't know what it is, but it's definitely directly associated with UFOs. These objects emit this substance, which is very much like cotton candy or spider web-like substance, which is sometimes emitted in large volumes and has been collected and shown a number of unusual properties. For example, it has like boron in it, which isn't a super common element. And we actually use it for shielding nuclear uh, materials, which is an interesting connection, I think. Uh, there's lots of medical evidence. We have absolute physical evidence in terms of medical injuries and healings. Uh, I'd say some of the best physical evidence we have, well, there's landing traces as well, some 3,000 to 10,000, uh, very convincing landing trace evidence. Ted Phillips was the real go-to guy with that. Uh, there's the radar returns, that's physical evidence, not to mention photographs. But the best evidence we have right now, the smoking gun evidence, it is implant removals. And Dr. Roger Lear headed that, unfortunately he passed away and it's difficult to get your hands on these implants, uh, you know, in terms of the public arena. You know, right here is a good place to point out and uh, give a shout out to Jeremy Corbell's uh, incredible movie. Uh, I think it's called Patient 17. Uh, he did a, a, a whole documentary on a patient that Dr. Roger Lear uh, had done an implant removal on. Did you ever see that movie? Have you heard of it? Uh, no, I haven't seen it. No, but yeah, Dr. Roger, I, I knew him not well, but, uh, you know, well enough. We'd spoken several times and I've interviewed some of his witnesses as well. I've seen some of the MRIs. I've, I held an implant uh, in my hand, an alleged implant, I should say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I find the implant removal evidence very convincing. And... Uh, I have to tell you, it's not uncommon. When I interview people who've had an onboard experience, many of them have stories about going to the doctor and getting an MRI or an X-ray, and the doctors are pretty confused about metallic objects in their foot, in their sinus, their jaw, their hand, their leg, their brain, uh, their lungs. So this turns up fairly regularly, but uh, the actual implant removals, that's where I think we're going to have some real, I mean, we do, we've got it now. From an evidentiary standpoint, we know UFOs are real. It's just the evidence is very much scattered. Some of it is very hard to get your hands on. And the very best is covered up by our own government. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you going down that list of, of physical evidence that is known to exist. I think what... Um, Jeremy McGowan was alluding to was for the particular incident of the Kingman crash, what type of physical evidence exists uh, uh, in, in, in that investigation? Um, as far as I know, really none. Uh, there are, I think, some documents that do allude to this, some government documents, but really all we have is multiple eyewitness testimony, but very good witnesses. Um, I will say that uh, some of these witnesses are, you know, pretty well respected. I, I I'm in no way discounting witness testimony, um, but he was, you know, and this is 
in fairness to you, you you've answered the question but i just want to be clear that uh, jeremy was asking if there was any physical evidence um and the answer is that nope. if there is <laughs> if, if there is physical evidence it's been scooped up and and hauled away by the government yeah okay. exactly in fair terms of, no you know then that's true with pretty much every single ufo crash retrieval incident but i don't think anyone i i believe there are some reports of you know bits of metal coming from the roswell crash and i and the pentagon has said flat out that they have otherworldly materials materials from otherworldly craft they made that statement and that's huge that should be front page news that should have people jumping up and down uh so i think it's coming we're gonna get it at some point but that's what i find most frustrating about these ufo crash incidents none of them have any physical evidence to support them other than perhaps you know documents of some kind and that's not really evidence uh you know hard evidence there are other incidents that have occurred throughout arizona that are also very well known like the phoenix lights which you had mentioned earlier but um, what about other uh, other sightings or other activity in the northern Arizona area? Uh, well, I mean, it's all across the state. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's everywhere. There's, and this is true. I think if you dig into any particular location, you will find a long history of activity involving sightings landings onboard experiences and perhaps ufo crashes uh, while the paradise valley is the most famous ufo crash in arizona it's not the only one there's a number of cases one in cave creek in 1947 there was allegedly an incident there another in uh let's see Glo globe arizona in 1948 uh a number of incidents actually um some we don't know the exact location of i think they're also attracted to the minerals the, the copper in particular perhaps lots of these cases of ufos hovering over the mines in these areas that could be a factor is are uh, all these are all of these incidents recorded in your book about about arizona yeah Okay, yeah. cool. Why don't you give a plug for your book, uh, the title of it, and where people can get it? Yeah, UFOs Over Arizona is uh, sort of a comprehensive presentation of the major cases. Obviously, you can't tell every single one because there's thousands upon thousands of sightings. And uh, it's one of several books I've written on various states. Uh, I do have a website. If you Google my name, it should take you there. PrestonDennett.Weebly.com, and I have excerpts of that book and my others. People can also contact me if they've got a you know a question or a comment or a story they'd like to share. And Arizona, yeah, the activity there is crazy. We've had some of the most influential UFO incidents in the world really happen in Arizona, and the Kingman crash is one of them. But there's of course the Travis Walton incident, uh, the Phoenix Lights is perhaps the most and one of the biggest sightings in the world ever <laughs> so uh 
very interesting area. And like I mentioned, lots of activity over the copper mines and the copper smelting plants. Uh, the stuff that's going on there is astounding. Just over and over again, some of these copper mines are being visited. So that I find very fascinating. And you, you think they're just attracted to the minerals, the, the, the metals? Yeah, yeah, they're landing at, at some of these mines, like the Morenci copper smelting plant. Uh, it was seen by all the workers. This object came swoop, swooped down and hovered right over the, the smelters, I mean, the, the uh, smoke towers, and actually dropped down this little ball of light like a probe into one of the, the um, towers there and uh, moved on to each one and inspected it, would inspect the slag heaps, you know, where there's supposedly all the ore has been removed, but everything, they're very interested in that. And that's true actually across the United States and the world where these UFOs will hover over mines and sometimes physically affect them. And there was a case in Texas where it hovered over the Carnes City uranium mine and actually depleted the uranium where they were digging. So yeah, definitely they're not only interested, but I think actually doing mining, <laughs> physically mining these areas. There is so much information that people are not aware of. And I mean, I'm, I'm getting a, a, a college education in this topic right now, just talking to you. Um, and I, I would love to go into this for hours on end. I, I seriously could do that with you. Would you be willing to come back on and talk more about some of these topics in a later date? Oh, yeah. Anytime. I love doing this stuff. Yeah. I, I think it's important. I really do. And you're located in Southern California. Is that correct? That's right. Outside of L.A. And uh, I kind of want to move at some point. <laughs> it's pretty crowded here. But yeah. This is where I've been based for since, gosh, 1970s. Uh, so, and besides, you already gave your website address. Uh, besides the website, how can people find out more about your work? And do you have anything new coming out in the very near future? Any new appearances, uh, speaking engagements, things like that? Uh, yeah, I'm always doing more research. I, I'm on Facebook. Uh, just recently got on Twitter not too long ago. I have a YouTube channel, which is blowing up and having a lot of fun uh, putting out my research in that arena, which is, I think, more accessible for, for people who don't have the time to read books. Uh, got all kinds of new projects coming up. Just put out a couple of books this year, Onboard UFO Encounters and UFOs at the Drive-In. Those are cases where UFOs hover next to drive-in theaters and show themselves off to the audience. Very strange, and I don't think at all well-known in the field. Putting out another book next year about people who've had really extensive encounters. Uh, actually, two books I've got planned for next year. So always keeping busy. Not a whole lot of speaking engagements right now. Uh, most of them have been canceled. Uh, but... Um, and lining up, you know, radio shows all the time, podcasts and speaking for MUFON groups uh, through, you know, remotely. So having a lot of fun with this stuff. I 
do think it's an important subject. I think if we have this hardware, if we actually have this Kingman UFO secreted somewhere and are reverse engineering it, and we have this free sort of energy, free energy or green technology, uh, we need to release it. This could solve the economic crisis, the energy crisis, the environmental crisis in one fell swoop. That's why I think this is so important. And I'm not giving up until I can see this Kingman UFO in a museum, along with the Roswell crash and all the others. I want to see it. I think that's a, a valid statement. And I would like to see it as well. Yeah. No, no doubt. Yeah, I, I think these things exist. I think our government has the technology in, in their hands. They're, they've been studying it, trying to reverse engineer it for years, decades. Yeah, just uh, show and, us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not children. We can, we can handle the truth. Let us know. Exactly. They don't have to tell us everything. Just, you know, we don't even have to touch it. Put in, you know, a, a velvet rope around it and just let us see it for Pete's sake. I don't see what the problem is. All right, Preston. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to push pause, at least for now, until we can reconnect and bring you back on the podcast to hear more of your fascinating research and interesting stories of what you've learned through your years of, of research and study. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and I look forward to talking to you again. Hey, thanks very much. Had a blast. Yeah, anytime. Awesome, my friend. Thank you.